We're back here with part two of this discussion on ethics with uh, Laura Christensen. And when we left off in the first portion, we were talking about boundaries and how they always have to do with roles, money, time, space, treatment location, gift services, language, and physical contact, number of different things. And one of the things that you'll often hear around ethics is that it's a slippery slope. If you make one transgression, oh my goodness, you're going to slide down and it's eventually it's the end of the world and ruined for everybody. But there are more nuanced ways of looking at this. And uh, Laura, you've got some ideas about this. Yes, I have been thinking about this for a long, long time. And of course, as a psychotherapist in a previous life, I became acutely aware uh, because I worked with people with very severe psychopathology where boundaries were the only thing that we needed to be thinking about and intervening with for their greatest benefit. And I've been is interested to see how in the acupuncturist relationship, things are a lot more flexible, but it also means that we have to be thinking and aware and tracking our internal process all the time. And it is helpful to have some kind of objective structure uh, to compare things to so that we kind of, we have a map so we know where we are. Mm -hmm. I mean, in your previous life as a psychotherapist, boundaries was the thing, like you're saying, as an acupuncturist, it, it comes up here and there. I mean, it's, all, it's always in the background. But it, it's not like dealing with someone who's got personality disorders where you have to be super attentive all the time. Well, and it's partly because we work with patients who aren't crazy, mostly. But I, I don't think that it's not there. I think it's always there every minute. Mm. Mm. Like yesterday in clinic, after I finished a treatment, I came out and sat behind the the desk and my secretary was checking out the patient and we were chatting casually. And right there, I had to be making choices about how to present myself for the best benefit of that person. And so for me, the issue is never out of my consciousness. So I know that we've talked in the past, you've got some ideas about boundary crossings. It's not just a slippery slope, but there are some more nuanced ways of looking at it. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So as I stumbled through the world of boundaries, I uh, ran across an article by uh, Richard Martinez, who is a forensic psychiatrist. And he quoted another article by Thomas Gutheil, which was actually written in 93. And uh, I, Tom Gutheil was actually one of the friends of my psychoanalyst psychiatrist supervisor when I was working. So I kind of knew something about him. And what Tom Gutile said is that boundary crossings can be considered through this lens. First of all, there are boundary crossings that present potential harm to the patient. Secondly, there are boundary crossings that might present potential benefit to the patient. And then there are boundary crossings where there might be an option for the practitioner to be exploiting the relationship or coercing the patient in some way. And then the next group are 
the professional intentions and motives. So we need to think about boundaries in terms of what is our true motive or true intention in each boundary crossing. Another one is, does this boundary crossing enable us to be moving in the direction of professional ideals? And we talked about that in the previous segment, that the relationship is sacred, the relationship is a container that enables us to be of service. And so we need to ask, does this boundary crossing uh, threaten that sacred container in any way? So with these five kind of vectors or measures, we can think about a potential boundary crossing that we see coming at us. All right. Now, I know you have provided me with a chart of these, and, and for all y'all that are listening, you'll find it over on the show notes page. You might want to download that and uh, take a look at it. It'll help guide you as we go through the rest of this conversation. So what what Richard Martinez said is that we can classify a potential boundary crossing into four categories. And I'm actually going to talk about it in the reverse order from which they're presented on the chart. So across the top of this are those five measures that I just mentioned. So the first one is risk of harm to patient and relationship. The second one is coercive and exploitative elements. The third category is potential benefit to patient and patient professional relationship. The next one is professional intentions and motives. And the fifth one is professional ideals. And then at, at the far right column are recommendations in each of those cases. So then on the up and down scale, there are four categories, none or low harm. The second one is uh, low or middle harm. The third is high and the fourth is high. These are degrees of harm to the relationship or to the patient. So across the bottom line are boundary crossings that present no harm to the patient or the relationship or a low degree of harm. And in those cases, there are also no coercive or exploitative elements in the process. And there might be a, a degree of middle to high potential to the patient or to the relationship. So we're talking about here boundary crossings that help the patient and help our relationship with them, like building rapport. Professional intentions and motives in this one say that the patient's interests are more important than our professional self-interests. So we for sure have our eye on benefiting the patient when we make this kind of boundary crossing and that the professional ideal is present. This is the ideal mode of care. And this type of boundary crossing is strongly encouraged by Dr. Martinez, justified and obligated as the benefit increases. Would you like me to give an example? Yeah, let's 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 put this into uh, play and as to how we might see this unfolding in our practices. 
So one of the boundary crossings that I stumbled across is um, sharing during a clinical exchange. I tend to chat with patients while I'm putting needles and I like to chat about things other than Chinese medicine to create rapport, to connect, and to um, give them a little taste of who I am as a person so they feel safer. And one of the situations that has come up actually repeatedly is the subject of gardening. Because I like gardening and I know some of my patients like gardening. And so sometimes I might say to a patient, I've got this particular gardening question and I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for me. And we might chat about gardening and exchange ideas about it. And that is a boundary crossing. It's important to recognize that because we tend to not see that as a boundary crossing, but it's a place where I am no longer just the professional in the relationship, but I'm suddenly sharing something personal, sharing something that's not related to our clinical exchange in an obvious way. And I am sharing something that in a sense makes me more vulnerable than if I were just the silent doctor. Which of course that vulnerability can help to build the relationship. That's the point that as I make myself more vulnerable, I am, because I'm, I'm lowering my position of power in a sense, it is easier for the patient to trust me and to experience me as helpful and not, um, not dangerous. So especially with a patient who might be new, who's frightened, who thinks this whole experience is scary and strange. Which it is. Yeah. It absolutely is. I mean, lying on a table and allowing yourself to be stabbed with sharp objects by somebody who you don't know and who you don't know what they're doing is a frightening experience. And so those are the kinds of situations when I sense a patient is frightened that I might choose this kind of boundary crossing to connect so that they feel safer so that they can stay around long enough to get better so that they can trust me more, so that they can learn about what Chinese medicine can do for them. And so in my opinion, it's a positive experience all around. This is why Martinez says strongly encouraged. Mm -hmm. I would say to a degree, because there, there's an element of making that connection, being vulnerable, shifting the power dynamic a bit and opening up trust there's also a place where there's oversharing and now it can tilt in the other direction. That's correct. And that's why we have this chart. And so that is- I mean, it's almost like dosing herbs, right? There's a certain amount that's just right. But if you go over that or even under that, the formula is not going to be as effective. Right. And that's the slippery slope, the oversharing, because you know how easy it is to overshare. I. I promise you, we all, maybe 95% of us have done it in clinic. Now, how do you know when you've done it? I mean, I agree that it's there. And I generally will recognize that boundary myself, but it's hard to recognize it in the moment. It's usually sometimes afterwards. 
Well, it is hard to recognize it in the moment. And I think that it requires, first of all, a degree of self-awareness and self-monitoring so that when we're sharing with a client, we're, we're not letting ourselves go unconscious. If we're sharing because we need to, for some internal reason, like letting off steam or, you know, acting out because of some other issue in our lives that are not being managed appropriately. You know, we need to look at this chart and see where we, where that might be. If we've, if we've thought about it ahead of time, I think we have a better chance of managing that so-called slippery slope and being in a position of choice. I also, I'm thinking all of a sudden of a, a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist, and it's a conversation that I had with him years ago, a very similar subject about how you can build good rapport and it's helpful to build good rapport. And sometimes patients will ask you questions about something and, and it is appropriate to share. There's other times it's not appropriate to share. So the example that he gave was of a patient asking something about his experience with dealing with people with cancer, or, or this person was dealing with some kind of cancer and, and was asking, inviting him in a sense to share. And he said, if I'm going to share about something around that, it has to be something that has been resolved for myself. Anything unresolved may not be shared. Anything resolved may be shared. So for example, he could talk about the experience of his mother recovering from cancer, but he, he was not able to share something around a family member who's currently in the midst of it. Because in the midst of it is unresolved. Something that's resolved is resolved. I'm not sure that, 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 that that's exactly the best way to say it. I, what I would say, is it resolved for him emotionally? Not exactly. Is, not is the cancer treatment over, but is is he okay with it? Does he have any more regret or fear or whatever? But thank you for clarifying that because that, that really was the point that I was trying to make, that it was resolved for him in his own heart. Yeah. And, um, you know, an example that shows up in my clinic all the time is male bashing. In case some of you have never heard of it, <laughs> it's where women complain about the, the, the spouse. And it tends to be more in opposite sex relationships. And so, you know, very, very commonly, female patients offer me the opportunity to jump into the pool and do a little male bashing. And so right there, I'm being given an invitation to jump into this third level up from the bottom, risk of harm to patient and relationship, coercive and exploitative elements, ambiguous, benefit to patient, perhaps low, professional intentions, my self-interests, my, they're inviting me to express my irritation with my husband. And so there's the bait, professional ideals absent. You mm. know, this is not appropriate in a clinical relationship. Recommendations highly discouraged, rarely justified. And so, um, yeah, I think that that one is, it's so cute because it shows up and, and I actually know who's going to do it. I have one coming today who's going to offer me that hook, and I'm going to have to make that choice once again. Yeah, we, we do. The bait is offered, 
And uh, it is up to us to recognize, oh, I, ha I have some emotional involvement here beyond that I'm trying to connect with my patient, right? If there's, if there's some kind of juice in it for us, we should tread cautiously. Right. And so when, how do you know if there's juice in it for yourself? Well, that's a really good question. Actually, that question is one of the most important questions that applies to a lot of different situations like, you know, the question of selling things to patients, the question of treating patients during hours that you're not normally open, the question of offering patients a lower fee. All of those boundary crossing opportunities can be judged by how much juice you sense, how much fulfillment you will get by moving across that line. Mm -hmm. So I know for myself, and I'm, I'm thinking about like lowering fees in particular, because sometimes people are sensitive to that. And I want to be helpful. I don't want to fall on my sword. I don't want to be helpful. Sometimes I'll notice a certain kind of anxiety rising in me. Absolutely. And, and that's usually the tip off for me. Oh, there's something here. Am I offering them a discount so I'll feel less anxious? Or am I offering them a discount because it's truly in their best interest? In other words, are they anxious about this or am I anxious about this? Yep. You might have guilt and shame about charging a relatively high fee to somebody that probably can't afford it. Well, that can't afford a piece is always interesting to me because can they really not afford it or am I making up a story that they can't afford it? Yeah. And how would you know? Well, I mean, it, it can get really confusing when someone drives up in a really nice late model, shiny red BMW and they talk about not having enough resources. It, it just trips that, hmm, let's be really careful here. And like, what's really going on here? Yeah. Right. It also can bring up, I know on my side that like, what the hell? He just drove up in a shiny red BMW and you're talking about not having enough money. Like what else is going on here? So not only the part about wanting to be helpful, but the part about feeling undervalued. Yeah. So if you feel undervalued, you know, that's going to make you angry. Right. And is anger helpful when treating patients? Exactly. I mean, all of the things we're talking about are in order to keep the clinician in a state of greater, I don't want to sound strange, but purity, mm. where we can be faithful to our obligation to that patient to be of service. And the boundary crossings not only injure the patient, but they injure us. Right. This is this is something that this is a thread that's gone through this conversation that I hadn't really thought about until we sat down for this conversation about how the boundary crossings also can harm us. I hadn't thought about that. I always thought it was the other way around. Oh, we're the ones that are potentially harming our patients. But it also can harm us. It can harm our practice. It can it can um, harm our business. I, I I'd like to to move into something here. Let's use this uh, grid model that you've been talking about. I want to talk about selling things to our patients. Oh, that's a good one. It, well, I think it is a good one because 
you know, traditionally, I, I mean, these days, I think it's a whole different thing because of the way the drug companies interact with doctors. But traditionally, in the conventional medicine world, doctors did not profit from what they prescribed. They didn't sell, they don't sell medications. Their hands were completely clean of that. Yes. And I know for myself, I stock herbs and I sell herbs, but I mainly do that because you can't go down the street here and get what I want to give to my patients. Yes. Now, I know I fall on one side of the spectrum. I just do herbs. I know some people do supplements. I know there are some people in their practice, a big piece of their business is they want to make sure that they're selling supplements or herbs or extra stuff to patients. Um, we see this in the acupuncture world. We see it a lot in the chiropractic world where people will get all kinds of supplements. And in fact, it, it I find it impinges on my business sometimes because someone's been to see another practitioner, different kind of healthcare practitioner. I want to prescribe herbs for them. And they just paid $400 for a bunch of supplements. They're like, well, how much are these herbs going to cost me? So, you know, there's, there's that piece. But again, that whole ethical boundary of if I am going to profit financially, how does that cloud my ability to prescribe in a way that is of the most benefit to the patient? Yeah. And so um, if we put that on our chart, uh, risk of harm to patient and relationship, I think different people are going to say different things about it. I think that if you sell things at all, you are you have to be thinking about that and i think most of us are thinking that whatever we are selling is we're doing so in order to benefit our patient and so we're in the hopefully low to middle category but there is a high risk because there may be certain people out there who are selling more and more and more things because they know that it's going to profit them more and so there now we're in the high risk category. So um, I guess I would say that probably whenever we're selling to a patient, we're in the middle to high risk of harm to patient and relationship. I'm sure people might disagree with me, but I, I'm taking a more conservative position. This is what makes this an ethical issue and an ethical conversation because there are disagreements and because there is no hard line. We're in a zone of what might be appropriate and that's what right. might not be. And that's why we're we're in the third level up from the bottom on this chart where it says coercive and exploitative elements are ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It is not a an absolutely clear situation whether this is going to be an opportunity for us to coer to be coercive with our patients or not or exploitative. And so that's why this is you know, uh, this is this is the one that requires a very clear thinking. Benef potential benefit to patient and patient professional relationship. Now on this line, it says low benefit, but I would say selling things to clients that they cannot obtain anywhere else, we're gonna move that down to the middle or high benefit to the patient. It's not only dangerous for the patient, it's actually, beneficial to the patient and our relationship because we can help them more if we provide materials that they can't get anywhere else. Or for those people who sell supplements, I would assume you're selling things that are super high quality 
that patients won't find out there on the internet and that um, you think are uniquely beneficial to this particular person, not just, you know, selling everybody fish oil. And then the professional intentions and motives behind selling things, there's always a professional self-interest. You are selling things that benefit you financially. And that cannot be denied. And that you believe benefit your patient. And so I think we're kind of, now we're wavering between the third and fourth line of our chart. We're not sure where we are there. Mm-hmm. For professional ideals, I think for most of us, are high if we're selling things, because I would believe that most acupuncturists are selling high quality things that in their professional opinion are necessary for patient benefit. We could almost say we're in the bottom line there, that this is the ideal mode of care. Well, again, depending on where we're coming from, I have seen advertisements for certain herbal products and and the hook in the advertising was increase your bottom line profit. Yes, and I've seen a course or two out there, how to sell more stuff to your patients to increase your profit. So it's a thing. And years ago in a practice management course I took, they said, you you get income from three sources because any stool requires at least three legs. You have the one leg of performing acupuncture. The next leg is selling stuff. And then the third leg might be you know, getting passive income by renting property to other clinicians or teaching classes or whatever. And so uh, it was promoted to me years ago that that selling things to patients was an important way to help your practice keep going by having an influx of cash. And that's not that's not just my personal interest. That is of interest to all of my patients, because if we can keep our doors open, it enables me to keep helping people. Exactly. So, I mean, this is why these are such juicy topics to chew over. There's so many different facets that we need to consider. And, you know, again, I'm thinking about earlier in the conversation, we were talking about the importance that if you're going to be doing business, do your business well so you can keep doing business. So, for example, if you want to help your patients by stocking herbs and you sell those herbs, please make sure you're doing it in a way that you're not losing money. Make sure that you're doing it in a way that is appropriately profitable because that way you can continue to do it. That's right. Right? We don't want to pay for the privilege of selling people herbs. Well, some of us have done that at times. I think with so many things, we learn as we go. Right. At the beginning of a practice, if you're going to put in a granular pharmacy, you know, you're going to spend $5,000 and you're not going to see that, that profit for a long time. That's just how it is. So I find this chart really helpful, you know, and these ways of thinking about it really helpful. And the other piece for me is to be able to look at myself honestly and notice where am I measuring up to where I want to be and where am I not quite measuring up to where I want to be, right? Those, those places where you go, Ooh, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Because, you know, as, as we go through our maturing process as practitioners, we have to face these kinds of ethical issues 
and decide where we stand. And it's, I don't think it's very cut and dry. I mean, if it was cut and dry, there wouldn't be ethical issues. That's the slippery slope. It's well, it's the slippery slope or the, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this grid here. I'm thinking of it as like a fish ladder, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's different places where we, where we can kind of play, so to speak. And it's, it's helpful to be able to have something like this grid that we've been talking about because it's a way of orienting. I may not be where I want to be at this moment, but it, but if I know where I am and if I know where I want to go, okay, now I've got a map on working on that stuff. Right. That's why Martinez did this. Yeah, super helpful. Um, I'd like to, do you have anything else to say about selling to selling items to patients? No. Before we move on. Okay. All right. I, I want to jump in with issues of diagnosis and, and like actually practicing medicine, so to speak. As we're recording this, um, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 situation. So y'all listening to this a year or two from now, this might be history. I hope it's history. And I hope history went well, actually. But whether it's it's something like the COVID pandemic or just the, the issue of the hour, because there is always an issue of the hour, be it weight loss, be it stop smoking, be it, I mean, just whatever the thing is, right? Inflammation, in air quotes here. There's some kind of hot button that's running around in the health world. And people are often coming to us looking for help. And so are we helping them using our medicine as Chinese medicine is supposed to be practiced with differential diagnosis and making sure that for example, herbs actually fit the pattern? Or are we trying to assuage a patient's fear about something? And so, okay, this formula treats this thing that you're fearful of. So for example, oh, right now there's a lot of talk about we need to boost people's immune systems. And you ping fang san is, you can't even buy it these days because everybody's bought it up. So so I'd like to I'd like to get into a bit here the, the issues of diagnosis. And, and how we practice ethically, where on one hand, there's a way that Chinese medicine is supposed to be practiced, and yet there's kind of a hook, right? We are talking about that hook earlier to, oh, someone's got this problem. This formula is supposed to take care of that problem, but we haven't actually done a differential diagnosis to know if it's appropriate for the patient. How's all this play for you? Well, you know, it takes us right back to the very top, which is do no harm. And I was thinking about that guy who bought all that hand sanitizer down in Tennessee, and he's got a garage full of it. And he was hoping to sell it on Amazon for, you know, a hundred times what he paid. He drove all over. It wasn't, it might've been Kentucky. Anyway, these little tiny, tiny villages in the mountains and went to every dollar general and bought every bit of hand sanitizer. And he sold quite a lot of it on Amazon. And then they uh, detected what he was doing and they shut down his account. Now he's got a garage full of hand sanitizer. He can't move and people are needing it. So that's sort of like the, the, the worst case scenario. And this time in history, we're seeing a lot of that kind of thinking on the part of people who want to sell things. So that's like the, the far end of the spectrum. <laughs> Hopefully nobody misses that in our profession. So first of all, do no harm. And so if we 
you know, I've had patients call me up and say, what Chinese herb formula do I need to take to protect my immune system? There's the bait. You ping funks on, right. However, what if this person has a constitutional pattern that you know really precludes that, them from having that be the proper treatment? What are you going to choose? And so it comes back to the point that our patients are going to continue to present us opportunities to cross a boundary. And it is our professional obligation to hold the line, practice professionally, and that means make recommendations about herbs and supplements based on the patient's diagnosis, not based on the patient's panic or attempt to coerce us. Right. The, the other one that I've been getting a lot recently is, oh, um, there's this horrible virus going around. What kind of antiviral herbs do you have that I should be taking? Yeah, same, same thing. And we know that in the professional practice of Chinese herbalism, we have some very good historical information in the form of the Shang Han Lun about how to understand the process of an infection unfolding. And we also have a great deal of information coming out of China right now about what has been effective in the treatment of uh, these infections. And so, again, as our professional duty to do no harm, we must use our professional resources to do the very best job we can. And when patients just want something antiviral, we have to say, that's not how we work in this profession. So what about, I mean, we all have different ways of working and different ways of thinking. What about the people who do think of Chinese herbs as like, oh, this is a viral situation and I use antiviral herbs for virus situations. I mean, some people have been trained that way or they think that way. It's, that's their way of differentiating. Some Chinese herbalists, well, I think we all as Chinese herbalists know which of the, of the herbs are antiviral. And I think we know which ones are stronger and weaker. And there's nothing wrong with framing things that way. But we also know that the, the inherent design of Chinese medicine is to facilitate the entire organism. And that means to optimize as many functions of the physiology as we can, because we know that when the physiology is optimized, that the immune system will be part of that and will be doing a better job uh, with any kind of infectious agent. And so we might um, choose a formula that is constitutionally designed to optimize physiology while adding some, quote, antiviral herbs. We know them as heat toxin herbs, some of them. So, you know, that's our professional obligation. If we just go around and give people andrographis powder so they can stir it into a glass of tea and drink it, that is, we're crossing that boundary about do no harm because we may not be doing the best that we can for the patient. So I want to dig a little more into this thing here, especially around immune system, because in Chinese medicine, we don't really see an immune system, right? We have Wei Qi, which is a certain kind of protective Qi. We have Zheng Qi, which is a certain kind of vitality, which if it's strong enough, keeps us very healthy. There's Yuan Qi, 
which of course is, you know, a, a kind of essence that we have. There's the, you know, strong stomach chi means that you're going to have plenty of vitality and resources to deal with really anything in life. And so from a Chinese medicine point of view, when we're, when we're practicing Chinese medicine, we don't really have a concept of an immune system like we would have in Western medicine. And so I think it gets a little tricky in how we talk to our patients and in how we conceptualize it for ourselves, because we're talking across language and ideas. And of course, we want to be able to connect with our patients. But at the same time, if we're, if we're actually practicing Chinese medicine as a profession, we can't really say that we're boosting a person's immune system. And, and it makes practicing, especially Chinese herbal medicine, really hard because, like you were just saying a few minutes ago, the best way to protect somebody might be to give them a constitutional formula. The best way to help somebody might be to give them the opposite of what the current popular thing is, right? If everyone's reaching for the, you know, yin chow san and the banlan gun and things like that, but that patient is really cold and deficient, you're not going to be helping them at all. But they might be calling you and asking you for that stuff. The real temptation here is the one that we all struggled with in acupuncture school and probably after we started our practices, which is to try to practice Chinese medicine through a Western model. Um, now, I don't know any medical doctors who have been through the, the medical doctor acupuncture training course, so I don't really know what language they use. But in our profession, most of us have discovered somewhere along the line that if we try to practice Chinese medicine using a Western way of defining things, it does not work very well. And, you know, when we first go to acupuncture school, we have to train ourselves to not go to the Western biomedicine definitions. And it is a discipline, especially for those of us who have a lot of knowledge in Western biomedicine, it is a discipline to constantly pull our mind back to the, the distinct Chinese medicine framework in order to do this medicine with our patients. And it's just, you know, it's just another one of those examples of where you have to monitor your own internal process and keep on reminding yourself that it does not work if you try to do this through the Western language framework. So you can't, it's not that, I don't want to say you can't avoid doing harm, but you can't serve your patient to the highest degree if you do not practice the medicine authentically. Which of course means using the frameworks that we think about things, using differential diagnosis, making sure that we're prescribing in a way that is commensurate with the way Chinese medicine works. Yeah. I mean, it might make you feel good. So, you know, that you can benefit from prescribing immune tonics to everybody at their expense. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's, there's that, uh, there's that edge of the slippery slope, like coming up over the top it's not of a, a, slippery slope. Uh, a roller coaster, but it's right? not because we're going to use our, we're going to use our chart and we're going to look and see where are we? Okay. Let's take a look. Where are we with that? If we are satisfying our own need to be right, 
to get it right, to be an authority so that we feel good about ourselves. I mean, it's like, it's a lot easier to think in the Western model because it's everywhere we go. Our patients are speaking that language to us. That bait is offered to us all day, every day. My sciatica, it's going down my sciatic nerve, not my superior clunial nerve. I have piriformis syndrome. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, this is a day-to-day -day thing for us. And we have to, at that moment, stop and switch which meridian is involved. So it's the same thing with prescribing herbs. You know, is the, is the coat thick or thin? So if we look at our chart and we're tempted to do something because it makes us feel good, now we're in that fourth column from the left, professional, the, the, the interests of the professional outweigh the interests of the patient. If we're just doing something to feel good about ourselves, I help their immune system. You know, does it benefit the relationship? Well, you might think it does because you could satisfy yourself by saying, I gave you an immune tonic formula. But does that really benefit the relationship? When they go home and they end up with a severe dry cough because they already had a yin deficient constitution and you gave them a drying formula. Right. I remember one of my teachers when I was in school saying, you really know that you understand an herb or you understand a formula and you can only say you understand them when you've used it and it's worked and you know why and you've used it and it hasn't worked and you know why. That's very good advice. Well, I, I do think it's good advice and I think it points to how difficult it is to actually do Chinese herbal medicine. It's very difficult and most of us, when we graduate from school, we really don't have enough education to do this well. And sometimes even after in, being in practice for 20 years, we suddenly become aware that we really don't have enough education to do this you know, well. I mean, this stuff takes a lifetime to really work out. Well, maybe not a lifetime, but a good 20, 25 years, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm a slow learner. I, and I think if you're raised in the, the household where your father was an herbalist and his father was an herbalist, you're at a great advantage. You're at a great advantage, of course. And if you if you read Chinese, if you read medical Chinese, you're at a great advantage. No. But, you know, it's it, what we have to do in every case is look at the chart. Yeah, this is this is super helpful. Who is it benefiting? Is it benefiting us or the patient? Is it benefiting the relationship? Does it? Is it moving in the direction of our highest professional standard of care? Or are we just motivated to put ourselves higher on a pedestal in the patient's eyes? I mean, those are the dynamics that Martinez is trying to kind of put, put down clearly in this chart. It's helpful to have a map. It's helpful to be able to look at something like this chart and, and consider it. And, and, I, and I find for myself, for many of these kinds of issues, for really any ethical issue when I come down to it, it's, it's often hard to get a read on things because, as, as Richard Feynman said, you must not fool yourself, and the easiest person to fool is yourself. Yeah. In the extreme, we're constantly making interpretations about what we experience, and there, you know, there is no real necessarily objective stuff. And so uh, very hard to take responsibility 
under those circumstances. Well, it's, but we do our best. We do our best. It's a work in progress. So speaking of doing our best and and challenging situations, especially for acupuncturists that live in smaller places or are part of a, a particular community, that professional and personal boundary sometimes really gets stretched, right? There, I mean, there are situations, maybe you've been seeing someone for 10 years and you know them really well. You're kind of friendly. Maybe you even see each other socially to some degree. Or there's people that maybe you've known a long time and they would like to come to you for treatment. They're already friends. Now they want to become a, now they want to become a patient. Or there's the people in your clinic that you really do kind of click with and that relationship expands to some degree. I'm not talking romantic here. We know, we know that's, that one's a hard stop. But I think there's a lot of different ways that we sometimes will end up friendly with patients. And I'd like to turn this conversation now toward looking at that friendship aspect that sometimes happens in our clinics. Yeah, this is really important. You know, I, for me, one of the examples that has helped me think this through is I have a patient who's come to see me every week for 25 years. You haven't fixed her yet? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, she's a lot better than when we started. And she and I have a, a we have a friendship. Mm -hmm. We certainly do. She knows more about me than any other patient. And we've both gone through a lot of different things during this time. And um, she has been supportive of me personally. I have shared personal challenges with her. You know, that's the direction that relationships evolve in over that kind of time frame. It's just natural if you're, if you're a, a person who, uh, who likes to connect with people. And so as I began to examine that relationship, the question that came through my mind was, would I want to meet her for lunch? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And it was so clear, I could sense it inside my, my, inside my sensorium, the feeling of no, that that would not feel good to me. And um, I have another pair of clients who come to see me every other week. They drive from quite far away, this pair of ladies, and they always go out to lunch after they've had their treatments. And they asked me to come out to lunch with them several times. And I finally said, okay. And I went out once and it was the most uncomfortable thing because I felt very clearly that I did not want to socialize with them, even though in the treatment room, we're very, very friendly. Now, another example. So that, I think that's a great example there, Laura, of the sacred space of clinic and that there's, there are certain things that can happen in that space and they just can't happen in other places. That's right. The other example is um, I had a, a fellow come to see me a few years ago and I worked with him for about a year. And, th and then um, I met he and his wife at a workshop, um, energy medicine workshop. And I ran into them in, in the, the workshop world a few times. And we would go out to lunch together during a workshop day and we kind of became friends. And then his wife came to me for some treatments and um, she found it very helpful. And then my husband and I began socializing with the two of them. And we get together about once a month and have dinner and play cards. And they are avid card players. I knew nothing about playing cards. And we've had a lot of fun together. And we've shared a lot of different aspects of our lives. And 
so, you know, then the question is, why is that okay? And I had to really think about that. And part of it is that, for example, during social activities with them, we never discuss their health. Mm-hmm. You know, if the subject turns to that, I kind of shut down. That, that helps me feel better. And I think they got that message pretty quickly. Also, the two of them are people who are mature and people who have tremendous ego strength. In other words, there's no, they, they're not the kind of person who's going to take advantage of a relationship. They understand the ramifications of our friendship and they still will come to see me occasionally if they need a treatment. Um, they do come regularly to get herbs. And so, um, you know, it all feels good to me. It doesn't feel icky. And it's that icky feeling that is what, as a clinician, you need to get to know as your indicator that something is inappropriate for the patient. Right. There, there's this early, there's this sort of early warning signaling system that we have. Should, should we choose to pay attention to it? Yeah. And that brings me to another point, which is that when you are very stressed because of things in your personal life or because you just are having a very, very, very busy day in clinic or a challenging day, that is when you're going to transgress. That is when you're going to cross a line because you're not tracking that internal process very carefully. You're so distracted by something that you aren't able to feel that icky feeling when it shows up or you ignore it. Well, I think we all have times when we're like really on the game and other times where we're not. And it's only later in reflection that we recognize, oh, that might not have been a helpful boundary to cross. I've got some repair work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the questions that I will often ask myself because you know, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. It's, it's a moderate sized city, but it, I mean, it's kind of a small town in a way. So I, I mean, I see lots of different people. Some people I will run into at the grocery store. It's impossible not to. Oh yeah. Um, sometimes I run into people who, this is embarrassing. They like recognize me, come up and start talking to me. Like they know me. I have no idea who they are, but there's someone that I treated at one point. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Which is, and hopefully they tell you, after you treated me, I never had that back pain again. <laughs> so sometimes it's like that. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. And then there are people who I've known them a long time and they become my patient or, or, you know, like you were saying, there, there's people, we have a dual relationship. I am well aware that we have a dual relationship. Is it, is it thin ice? Well, I have to bring more attention to it. You know, with just a, with just a regular friendship, I can be unguarded around my professional life. But if my professional life is somehow also intertwined with a relationship, there's always a part of me in the back of my mind that's vigilantly asking the question, who does this benefit? Exactly. I've got something, you know, if I have something to share who does this sharing benefit? Now, this is why it's often hard to, to really have a true and close friendship with someone that you're seeing professionally. I think it's um, close to impossible. Um, but again, you know, we get these situations where there's someone that we might have known for a long time before they came in for treatment. So 
you know, again, if they're coming to see me for treatment, yeah, there, there's this boundary. The, the one that you talked about where you might be together socially with somebody, but issues of health just don't get talked about, or if they do, you shut it down. Yeah. That to me makes a lot of sense. You know, when I had my appendectomy and then we went to play cards next, I had to say, yeah, <laughs> the surgery went great. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, if if they if somebody says, oh, I've been having this sore throat for several weeks, what do you think I should do? I'll usually say, you know, you should call the office and we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't mind. No, I, you know, I think that patients actually appreciate when we stand up for the appropriate boundaries. Yes, because if we go back to our chart, it helps us maintain the 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 container, the sacred container that is our relationship with them as a healthcare professional. They very much appreciate that. That is where we are like guarding that container. Mm -hmm. It shows we're trustworthy. And but not just that, it's like a sacred trust mm -hmm. that we are the guardian of the container and they they uh, they don't just appreciate it on a deep, deep level, like on an archetypal deep level, they honor that we are taking care of that. Right. So let's let's turn this to another kind of social encounter. This is where it's someone we've never met before. We're just introduced, you run into them socially or well, you're just trying to sell your business and, you know, you're at a health fair or you're at some networking event and, and you're just socializing and people start talking about their health issues or they're trying to get advice. And on one hand, you do want to be available to let them know that you practice this medicine and you want to be able to connect. And on the other hand, they're looking for free advice. Well, and we know the value of free advice. Well, it's mixed. I, I would say it's usually not very valuable, actually. Well, if you're at a health fair and somebody comes up to you and says, I have fibromyalgia, what can you do for me? You know, one answer is come to the office and I'll tell you. But usually you're going to want to give them a little more than that. So you of might course. say, well, you know, we found that acupuncture is very helpful for fibromyalgia, but that it takes some time and we usually need to make some other modifications in your lifestyle and your diet. And, um, you know, and then they might say, well, what kind of things should I change? There's the hook. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you make your decision at that moment is, you know, am I going to reel this one in so that I can get them into my practice and make money off of them? Am I going to play really neutral and let them choose? You know, am I going to, how am I going to be with this, this situation? It's complicated. It is complicated. Well, you know, and again, I've, I've heard you use this term a number of times in our conversation here about there's the hook. And, and I think that's a great way to phrase it because there is this emotional sense of being engaged and that there's all of a sudden a lot at play. I like to think of the hook as well as a kind of invitation, right? So it's like in some ways they might be inviting you to transgress a boundary or at the same time, they might be inviting you to really hold that boundary, show that you're the kind of professional that you are, you know, and invite them properly into that sacred space of clinic. Please call the office. I'd love to talk with you more and we can do that at my office. 
Yeah, or check out my website. Or check out my website. I've got a bunch of information on my website. I wrote a blog article about it recently. Why don't you give that a look and then let me know if you have questions? Yeah, absolutely. Laura, it, you know, we could go on for a long time, and I, I know that there's a lot more that we could talk about, um, but we're at a point where we need to start to wind this down. Anything else that you would like to share around this grid here that can help us to orient? Well, I think the most important point is that if you examine any of these boundary issues, it's usually not going to go straight across on one line of the grid. Don't be surprised in examining a scenario if you're going to pop up and down between of the boxes on this grid. Mm-hmm. And the real issue is that you're thinking it through. And so I'm hoping that, you know, as a result of this conversation, that we're all going to be uh, set with a little bit better toolkit for thinking through all the varieties of, of interactions that we're going to be coming across in our professional lives. Great. That is super helpful. Thank you so much for this time, and I hope you all found this to be useful. Thanks a lot, Michael.